in the future. There are no people. There are no people in the future. No people at all. There are no people in the future. Where did all my people go? There are no people in the future. Let me try my people call. Everybody, everybody, welcome, welcome. Yes, it is Friday, January 20th, 2023. I wrote 2033 in my notes. How about that? I guess I'm thinking about the future. <laughs> Anyways, welcome to Raging Chickens Out to Coop podcast. It's our Friday politics roundup. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Each week we break down the good, the bad, and the ugly in state and national politics. You can support this show by becoming a patron for as little as five bucks a month. Head on over to patreon.com slash rcpress for all the information on how to do that. You can also help out the show by heading over to our YouTube channel if you're not there already. Smash that subscribe button, like the stream for this show, and hit that notification bell so you know every time that we go live. And if you're one of our podcast listeners, right, the core of this show, our podcast listeners, make sure you leave us a review wherever you listen to this podcast. Give us that five-star review. Um, leave us a little kind of note. Leave a little review on iTunes or kind of um, uh, Apple Podcasts or Google Podcasts or Podbean or Stitcher, wherever you get your podcast. Leave us a review that helps other people find the show. Um, I appreciate all that you do. And of course, our Twitter warriors out there, as usual, um, kind of lighten up the boards. It's great. And as this school board season begins, don't let Paul Martino and his oligarch friends buy our schools and push extremist politics in our community. Raging Chicken has teamed up with Level Field to launch a truly community-rooted pack to invest in organizing, supporting local and statewide progressive candidates, and unmasking the toxic organizations injecting our communities with right-wing extremism. We're putting small-dollar donations to work to beat back the power of big money. You can get more information and drop your donation at ragingchicken.levelfield.net. That's ragingchicken.levelfield.net. Well, on today's show... The battle over voting rights has not let up. Republicans in several key states have kept up their agenda to restrict access to voting. New Zealand's Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern announced that she will step down in a few weeks, which was tragic in my view. I admit to being total fan of, uh, of her. Uh, she was, I believe, the youngest person ever elected to that office, um, maybe one of the youngest prime minister ever, and only the second um, person to ever give birth while in office. Um, she was amazing. She was amazing. Um, and what she did really, and her government, right, the New Zealand, the Labor Party, all that kind of stuff, what they did there was just really amazing over the past three years. It's such a counter to what happened in this country, but put that aside. And it's uh, going out to thanks to the Twitter crew out there for uh, a light, uh, kind of alerting me to this one. I actually found out that I did have this tagged already, but uh, uh, I was in a, I had it tagged for some of my classes. So um, a new Pew Research Center study found that only about half of Americans think that colleges and universities are, quote, having a positive effect on the way things are going in the country these days, unquote. And about 38 percent say that it's actually having they're actually having a negative effect. And as I bet you are already thinking, yes, there is a big partisan divide on this issue. Case in point, 
Florida is banning a new advanced placement test on African-American studies. That was to be offered in their high schools, right? So it was all ready to go. Nope, they banned it. The Florida Department of Education said, quote, the content of this course is inexplicably, inexplicably, inexplicitly, sorry, contrary to Florida law and significantly lacks educational value, unquote. That law, of course, is the new law passed last year by and then signed by Governor Ron DeSantis, which restricts discussions of racism in schools. Or was they like to, you know, we don't want to teach race the wrong way, you know, the way that kind of lets the people know that white people were enslaving black people. Now, can't let them know that. We can't talk about exploitation, you know, whatever. Anti-abortion activists are gathered in D.C., and uh, yes, it is their national quote-unquote pro-life rally, but it is also, it turns out, to be uh, an opportunity to demand a federal ban on abortion, which is making those so-called moderates in the Republican Party even more a little bit concerned <clears throat> about electoral consequences of stoking the flames of extremism. And Google announced, well, technically Alphabet, Google's parent company, Google announced uh, layoffs of about 12,000 workers, which amounts to about 6% of its total global workforce. It's a pretty big deal. PA News, Josh Shapiro was sworn in as Pennsylvania's 48th governor this week. Congratulations, Josh Shapiro, to sworn in. And I got to say, I'm a total supporter of this. We'll see how you feel about this. But in one of his first acts in office, Shapiro removed the college degree requirement for most government jobs in the Commonwealth. That means about 65,000 jobs will not be open to people, uh, will now be open to people, regardless of whether or not they went to college. This is a really big deal. And we'll talk a little bit more about why that is kind of important, especially when you're talking about kind of um, what government is supposed to do. So I was really, really thrilled about that. And we'll see else what else we got going on in PA. There's always kind of like like craziness going on on the school boards, but you know, I worry that you know we we talk a little bit too much about the school boards, perhaps on this on the program sometimes. I don't know, uh, but I know three of the uh, uh, the Democratic uh, school board members in the Central Buck School District just released a uh, I, I believe it was an op-ed in the or like uh, an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer today, basically railing against Central Buck School District um, in their kind of uh, you know destruction of uh any kind of like you know sane governance of the school the school system but we'll get to there and today's last call wizards of the coast is in hot waters with dungeon and dragons community over attempts to roll back its open gaming license or its ogl and wizards of the coast uh for those of you who may not know they are the uh, parent company they own the dungeons and dragons franchise right and wizards of the coast is owned by was bought out by, was owned by Hasbro, that giant megalith of a toy company. So you can kind of get to see how this is um, getting set up. It's a really interesting case, even if you're not interested in, say, your tabletop uh, role-playing games and that kind of stuff. Um, what's interesting now, too, as well, now gaming companies such as Cobalt Press are looking to launch new table, uh, new tabletop role-playing gaming systems that will remain open access and will present a little bit of a challenge to D&D. So we'll talk a little bit about that, too, as well in today's show. For more PA Progressive Talk, tune in to The Rick Smith Show every day at 9 p.m. Eastern on his YouTube channel, Twitter, Facebook, wherever you get your streams. 
And you got to subscribe to his podcast wherever you get your podcast. Head out over to the ricksmithshow.com for the latest across all his platforms. And you got to check out the Sisters of the Night Caucus podcast. The amazing PA women stirring the political cauldron behind this podcast, Rock the House. And you know where the bodies are buried. Make sure to follow them on Twitter at, at the Night Caucus. That's at the Night Caucus on Twitter. And subscribe to their podcast at Anchor, Spotify, iTunes, wherever you get your podcasts. And you gamers out there, video gamers, yep, friends with my son maybe, <laughs> I don't know. But attention all you gamers out there, the Game In, that's with two N's, the Game In is a Quaker Town-based, black family-owned gaming store. They're friends of the show, and they've got everything for Retro N64s, the latest consoles, video games for all platforms, collectibles, action figures, Funko Pops, walls of Funko Pops. And kids get discounts when they get A's at the report card, you can't beat it. Check them out on their Facebook page. Follow them on Twitter at, at the Game In. That's with two N's. If you got a question about a game, look for something hard to get. Shoot them a message or drop them an email at thegameinpa at gmail.com. And look, everybody, if you want a progressive future, we need progressive media. Support Pull No Punches homegrown progressive media today. Become a patron of Raging Chicken for as little as five bucks a month. Just go to patreon.com slash rcpress. We're here for the fight and we need you. Become a patron for the price of a good beer once a month. Help keep the media in the movement and the movement in the media. Become a patron for as little as five bucks a month by going to patreon.com slash rcpress today. Well, welcome, welcome. Good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, good morning. I hope you had a decent week. I don't know about you, but uh, yesterday I was like, I could barely keep my eyes open yesterday. Uh, I was exhausted. That kind of rain, the nonstop rain and the gloom has been getting to me this year uh, in ways that it hasn't in previous years. Um, and, you know, it's like it, part of it is, um, you know, it's it's the lead up. My my semester begins next week. I've just been working a lot, been sitting in front of the computer a lot, kind of preparing for classes and all that other kinds of stuff. Um, had to drive out to Kutztown to copy, copy my syllabi yesterday. And, of course, we find out the news that the, the copier doesn't quite work right. And the uh, our administrative assistant, who's basically the one who knows how to run the entire department, well, she's going to do her student teaching. She just finished her degree. She's going to do her student teaching. And despite the fact that she let everybody in the administration know exactly when this was all going to happen, everybody was aware of it, the administration has decided that they are, well, they just can't seem to uh, – you know, I don't know, find it in themselves to find us a replacement. So we're going into the new year with uh, without sufficient staffing in our office. Surprise, surprise, surprise. So uh, so that had something to do with it, too, as well. Uh, I won't lie. Um, <clears throat> and then not to mention this earlier this morning, I'm surprised I'm as awake as I am now because I'm uh, fresh off a new batch of blood work. Yes, indeed. On the kind of ongoing uh, attempts to figure out what the hell of why, you know, what the hell's going on with me uh, these days. Um, so that was always fun. Um, <clears throat> went and got it. Got to say, uh, but I, I I don't know if this made me feel like, I don't know, worth it. But, I, you know, I basically went and getting the <laughs> my blood work and, you know, I asked the guy, you know, I was, oh, you know, how you doing today? He's like, if I told you. You'd probably run out the door. <laughs> I'm like, oh god, that's what you want to hear before you got to get blood work, right? Uh, but real nice guy, uh, just awesome, just uh, uh, a lot of uh, a lot of fun at the uh, at the blood donation place. Not donation, but the they'll pull the labs. They pulled so many freaking vials. I'm surprised that I'm like not woozy or something. Anyways, uh, let's get to the news today. Let's get to the show, huh? Um, so you may or not have uh, I may not have been seeing this, but. 
Uh, there's a really good sh uh, report in the New York Times, an article in New York Times that's tracking some of the uh, new voting laws um, in the that, you know that are kind of going into effect uh, leading up to um, uh, leading up to the 2024 election. Thanks, Nick. I appreciate it. Um, so um, and we've got, say, voter ID laws. We've got, um, you know, different things that are trying to restrict access to the ballot and so on. So let me read you a little piece of this here. So Republicans have pushed to this is from The New York Times article. Um, Republicans have pushed to tighten voting laws with renewed vigor since former President John, Donald Trump made baseless claims of fraud after losing the 2020 election. While Democrats coming off midterm successes are trying to channel their momentum to expand voting access and thwart efforts to undermine elections. States like Florida, Texas, and Georgia, where Republicans control the levers of state government, have already passed sweeping voting restrictions that include criminal oversight initiatives, limits on drop boxes, and new vote, uh, identification requirements, and more. While Biden and the Democrats in Congress were unable to pass federal legislation last year, that would have protected voting access to restore elements of the Landmark Voting Rights Act stripped away by the Supreme Court in 2013. Not all reform efforts have floundered. So that kind of gives you such the context and just give you some of the senses that's, that has happened. So uh, Ohio basically um, just passed a new law that was just signed into law on January 6th, the day of the insurrection, the anniversary of the insurrection. Um, that was signed into law by Governor Mike DeWine, of course, Republican. Um, and it's not lost on anybody that it was signed on January 6th. Now Ohioans must present a driver's license, passport, or other official photo ID to vote in person um, under that new law. It also sets tighter deadlines for voters to return mail-in ballots and to provide missing information on them. Absentee ballot requests must be received earlier as well. Um, so you get the, you know, we get to see these things that are that are going on. Those are going to be challenged by numerous groups in Texas. Uh, the GOP looks at election crimes and ballot initiatives. So despite enacting sweeping restrictions on voting in 2021, we cover that a lot on the show back and then um, they were condemned by civil rights groups and the Justice Department at the time. Uh, Republican lawmakers in Texas are seeking to push the envelope even further. They have dozens of bills related to voting rules and election administration were filed um, for the legislative session that began this month. Uh, while many are from Democrats seeking to ease barriers on voting, Republicans control both chambers of the Texas legislature and the governor's office. So they, the GOP proposals focus on election crimes, including one that would authorize a secretary of state to designate an election marshal responsible for investigating potential election violations. Right. Um, now, from uh, you know, under another bill, um, a voter could request that the secretary of state review local election orders and language on ballot propositions and reject any that are found to be, quote, misleading, inaccurate or prejudicial. Part of the push by Republicans in several states to make it harder to pass ballot measures after years of progressive victories. Right. Another proposal seems to be targeted toward uh, Democratic controlled counties, which gives the state attorney general the power to appoint a special prosecutor to invite voter fraud allegations if local officials decline to do so. Right. Another bill um, allows the attorney general to seek an injunction against local prosecutors who don't investigate. So, again, they're putting this kind of pressure on. So if you take out the, you know, and what does it mean to investigate? So if you've got some group, some well-funded group who makes these kind of faulty, like, um, um, allegations, have got these uh, making outlandish ideas about the election being stolen or so on, if a local prosecutor looks at that or a local thing, they look at this and this is ridiculous, there's no basis for this whatsoever, and they refuse to investigate, they could actually be feeling the wrath now of the attorney general, um, which, is, which is pretty crazy. Thank you, Emily, too, as well.
Um, Democrats in Minnesota and Michigan, however, are going the other way. They're attempting because of their wins. They're attempting to kind of increase access to voting. Um, but this is the part that, too, I want to make sure that we put this on uh, our agenda, because in that same article, you go down a little bit further. There's a section there about Pennsylvania. So Pennsylvania Republicans want to expand a, a voter ID law. Now, you recall. Um, voter ID was a big deal, right, um, in Pennsylvania. Um, so voter ID. Um, in Pennsylvania was, you know, they wanted to kind of restrict it. And I, I can't believe I'm completely, I cannot believe I'm spacing the name of the guy um, who was the Speaker of the House, Pennsylvania Speaker of the House, um, who basically famously was on uh, recorded at uh, kind of event saying, like, how are we going to ensure that um, this is back with Mitt Romney? Mitt Romney kind of gains access to the, uh, you know, who wins Pennsylvania. Well, voter ID, right, basically restricting access in Philadelphia, done, right, as he says, knowing full well that that was the purpose, right, by kind of getting a voter ID law passed was something that was critical. So now, but here, let's, I'll read you the section that the New York Times has. So it's because of the veto power of the governor and office the Democrats held in November, um, held in the November election, Republicans of Pennsylvania have been, uh, have resorted to trying to amend the state constitution in order to pass a voter ID bill. The complex amendment process, which ultimately requires putting the question to the voters, is the subject to pending litigation. Both chambers of the legislature need to pass the bill this session in order to place it on the ballot. But Democrats narrowly flipped the control of House in the midterms, and they uh, will seek to bolster their majority with the three special elections next month. If the chips fall on a certain quote, if the chips fall on a certain way, it is unlikely this bill will move forward, and it might quite possibly be dead. Unquote, said Susan Gobreski, um, a board member of the League of Women Voters of Pennsylvania. But it ain't dead yet. Right. And Josh Shapiro has indicated openness to compromise with Republicans on some voting rules. This is what worries me. Quote, um, is what Shapiro said, I'm willing to have an honest conversation about voter ID as long as that is something that is not used as a hindrance to voting. Shapiro has separately said that he hoped that Republicans in the legislature would agree to change the state's law that forbids the uh, processing of uh, absentee ballots as er and early votes before Election Day. The ballot procedures, which can drag on, uh, which can drag out the counting, have been a flashpoint in a series of election lawsuits filed by Republicans. OK, so here this is kind of why this this whole thing is important. We see the, again this next assault on um, elections in um Terzai, that's the guy's name. Terzai <laughs> was the one who said that about voter ID. Sorry. Um, um, is that the Republicans want to do this. The only reason why we didn't get this whole this voter ID laws that was passed before was because of the power, you know, because of uh, we have a Democrat in in office. Um, and with the uh, Democrats basically narrowly flipping the House now, this is this has really stifled some Republican plans. Right. And just like the article says that we might see this like um, we might see this uh, uh, become even less of an issue once these special elections are done, replacing Summer Lee, uh, replacing the one legislator that, that died in office, you know, this kind of thing. So once those are filled and those are most they're pretty much a guarantee to be Democratic, um, democratically held since they're in strongly Democratic districts. Um, we're likely to kind of to see a, uh, the pause button hit on this. However, what concerns me is not so much the um, 
the numbers of people in the state legislature, but rather the a particular breed of Democrat, which believes that the only way that they're going to be able to kind of govern effectively or that they're going to hold on the office or they're going to basically be the quote unquote adults in the room and they're going to try to look look for points of compromise so they can tell everybody that they've compromised they've worked in a bipartisan fashion and so on right the problem when it comes to voter id laws right is that voter id right, is searching for a problem that does not exist. It is a solution to a problem that does not exist. When you register to vote, you have to show voter ID. Every time you change a toll, like a polling place, right, you're going to get you're going to get your information checked, right? Like I work as a judge of elections, right? You kind of see this and see what kind of checking people's um, stuff coming in, right? And the people at the polls know generally know who's coming in and so on, right? Voter ID and the kind of push for voter ID began because of a, a a completely fabricated argument made up by right-wing Republicans that there was massive voter fraud and that people are showing up to vote who are not the actual people. They're voting two, three times at different places. They made it up out of whole cloth. And that is the move that they said, well, therefore, we need voter ID. The problem with this kind of law, unless you are really clear about the political agenda behind voter ID, it can sound like a no brainer to most people. Right. Most people say, oh, yeah, well, people, you know, we just want to make sure that, you know, everybody has got a voter ID. Right. So they could show up, they could show their ID to vote. Right. Most people don't see what the issue is with that. They don't see why that's why that's a problem. And then when you start to kind of push back against it. Right. And this is the, the brilliance of it as a political strategy from the right wing. Right. Is like because when you push back against voter ID. Right. It raises suspicion by people. Well, why wouldn't you want people to be able to show that they're the person that's on the voting rolls? Right. Because it sounds like it's built into the logic of the argument. Right. So that when you push back against it. So my concern when you have that language about um, voter ID coming from the you know Shapiro folks and coming from Shapiro himself, um, you don't want to kind of have these kind of centrist or corporate Democrats, right? Um, and again, that's not the entire caucus, but it's a, you know, it's a significant part who might want to say, okay, yeah, we got to get back to the, you know, problem solving, the apolitical, the kind of, you know, the non-ideological, just, you know, government by experts kind of agenda and show that we can be bipartisan because that's our brand. And then work with Republicans to pass the voter ID law, which will then have a negative impact on primarily people of color, of college students, of younger folks, of poorer folks, right? All the people that are more likely to vote for Democrats. So this is like another one of these setups, right, for the uh, the Democratic Party in the state of Pennsylvania, right, in the Commonwealth of Pennsylvania. The setup is to try to reach out and kind of be part of bipartisan and then end up doing so at your own demise. Right. So this is the kind of thing where, you know, you're listening to this show, you're out there, you're working in kind of organizations and so on. We need to kind of keep the pressure on it and keep the pressure on Shapiro Right. That, no, we're not going to do this voter ID stuff. Right. If you want to do voter ID. OK. You, how about then? Then you get same day registration. How about that, too, as well? I mean, there's got to be, you know, if you're going to do it, there's got to be some kind of offset. 
right? And if you want voter ID, right, the way to do that, right, is to basically say, okay, at every polling place, you're going to have a, a voter ID booth set up, right? So that after someone votes, they can go and get their voter ID right there. But it, you won't need one for the until like the, the presidential election of 2028 or something like this, right? So you've got sufficient time to make sure everybody has got that kind of ID. But let's be clear, and Republicans will not want to do that. Why? Because they know that all that stuff actually, number one, costs money. Number two, they know that the voter ID is not about voter ID. It's not about what it purports to be, right? It is about trying to suppress the vote. So they want it now because they're interested in taking power now, right? If Shapiro wants to play the game of Democrats and corporate Democrats or what are centrist Democrats would want to play the game of because they bipartisanship, then they need to basically start with, okay, what is going to be necessary in order to institute a voter ID law? How much, um, you know, a lead, lead time do you need in order to make sure that it doesn't have a negative impact on elections? And why not get in touch with the Brennan Center for Voter Rights, right, at NYU? Why not get in touch with them and say, have to come in? Because come in as a, you know, nonpartisan independent commission to come in and actually lay out what it would mean to kind of do that. But Republicans, I guarantee you, will not want to do that. They want to use this as an ideological kind of like, you know, scare, ideological scaremongering in order to kind of gain gain power and kind of continue minority rule. So just, I, you know, I spent a little more time on that than I wanted to, but it's like, this is the kind of stuff that is coming down the pike that I think the last time around, you know, last time around when the last, last census, really 2010, right, 2020 into 2011, I think that a lot of people like kind of the center to the left we're kind of caught at our heels at, at how deep of an agenda and how sophisticated this agenda was, right? It's designed to suppress um, voting rights. So that's kind of first and foremost to keep our eye on this this year. Um, uh, yeah, I mentioned this, uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, the prime minister of New Zealand, uh, just announced this week that she uh, is going to resign. This is what she said. Um she said, I'm leaving because with such a privileged role comes responsibility, the responsibility to know when you are the right person to lead and also when you are not. And I know what this job takes. And I know that I no longer have enough in the tank to do it justice. It's that simple. I am human. Politicians are human. We give all that we can for as long as we can. And then it's time. And for me, it's time. Um, I have to... I have to say that, you know, she she was kind of an inspiration to me. I mean, I don't know about you, how much you followed her career and stuff. But um, if you look at what happened in New Zealand, New Zealand basically opened up um, to kind of like maskless society, right, um, earlier than anybody else. They had incredibly low rates of infection because they invested in a public infrastructure to make sure um, that people had what they needed um, and people were not going to be harmed by having to stay home from work and so on. Right. They did every I mean, I know I know. Look, I know New Zealand's a smaller country, a much smaller country. Right. Um, but it matter. But listen, while she was, you know, she was there for five and a half years. And while she was there. She I'll just read that. Let me read her quote. Quote, this has been the most fulfilling five and a half years of my life, but it's also had its challenges. Among an agenda focused on housing, child poverty, and climate change, right, which they did vigorously, right? They just, they, they, it was amazing. But we also encountered 
a domestic terror event, right? If you remember that mass shooting at the White Church, first time we ever have it, which led to, by the way, a ban of assault weapons, right? She announced it almost immediately. It was like, you're gonna, nope, this is what we're going to do. Um, but there was a major natural disaster, right? Global pandemic and an economic crisis, right? So all this kind of stuff was going on, right? Um, and the economic crisis was the same kind of stuff that all, everybody's been feeling because of supply chain crunches and all this other kind of stuff. And she went through all of that. I mean, she was uh, kind of amazing. And now there's starting to be reports that are coming out. And this is just tragic, um, you know, but it's nonetheless, you know, it is, it is what we know is true, is that she's also faced harassment and death threats while she's been in office. There's been criticizing, you know, about her because she's a woman, even when it wasn't, even when it wasn't explicitly about the fact that she was woman, it was because she was a woman. Questioning her childcare, all this other kinds of stuff, right? Um, but for those of us who watched you, um, uh, Jacinda Ardern, uh, I want to thank you, and um, I am pretty. I am. I was. I was impressed from the beginning, and it gave me hope about the issues that you've been, um, that she's been able to to bring forward. And I, I hope that it's a certain kind of beacon of possibility, if you will. And yes, like I said, it's a small one. It's not a one to one correspondence, all that other kind of stuff. But it is a small beacon of possibility and hope to see what's possible when your politics is not in the kind of kind of neoliberal kind of like hackish rut that ours are in when you actually have a political system and a political party and a, a country that has made decisions to try to do better for people with that kind of imagination following science like looking to help the you know, people that are kind of are, are hurting making sure that nobody's suffering from the loss of housing and things like this pretty amazing um yeah, um, this study from the uh, from Pew Research, I thought was really fascinating. Um, this was sent to me by uh, a listener. I can tell you who it is in a second. Uh, if I can, I didn't I somehow I managed to shut down my uh, I managed to shut down my Twitter. Um, but this one was let's see who sent me this one. I want to say it was starry eyed. Uh, yeah, yeah. Thank you, Starry-Eyed. Uh, that's what I thought. Um, that's what I thought, but I just want to make sure I got that right. Don't want to kind of misattribute. Um, it's a it's a really interesting study. Um, it's it's and I shouldn't say it just came out. It came out. Um, it came out a little while ago, but it was interesting to start seeing this in um, seeing this in particular kind of trends of, of what's happening in higher education. This one was actually, this actually came out in 2019. Um, the first rounds of it. it has been making renewed rounds though. Uh, I'm not sure, uh, um, starry eyed got this from one of these other articles or one of these other discussions that was kind of going on. Um, but I've been finding that, um, this has been emerging in the wake of some of what's been happening in the school boards, what's been happening in higher education, uh, in Florida. I believe that's what I was reading about it when it was referring to this, um, this Pew, uh, research survey. But why why this matters? It, well, it matters for several reasons. Okay, so the top line number is that, or the top line kind of finding is um, 
this. I'll just read the opening paragraph here. So Americans see value in higher education, whether they graduated from college or not. And most say a college degree is important, if not essential, in helping a young person succeed in the world. And college graduates themselves say a degree helped them grow and develop the skills they need for the workplace. While fewer than half of today's young adults are enrolled in a two-year to four-year college, the share has ridden steadily over the past several decades. Um, this is changing just a little bit. But even though, even despite that, there's this kind of undercurrent, right? And so now um, this new Pew Research sur survey finds that only half of American adults think college and universities are having a positive effect in the way things are going in the country these days. About 4 in 10, 38% say they are having a negative impact, and that is up from 26% in 2012. The share of Americans saying college and universities have a negative impact have increased by 12 percentage points since 2012. The increase in negative views has come almost entirely from Republicans and independents who lean Republican. From 2015 to 2019, the share saying colleges have a negative impact on the country went from 37% to 59% among that group. Over the same period, the views of Democrats and independents who lean Democratic have remained largely stable and overwhelmingly positive. Gallup poll found similar shifts in views about higher education. Between 2015 and 2018, the share of Americans saying they had a great deal or quite a lot of confidence in higher education dropped from 57% to 48%. And the fall off was greater among Republicans from 56% to 39% than among Democrats from 68% to 62%. Right. There's... There's a lot kind of going on. What's really interesting about this survey, when you start, you're breaking down, you start looking at the numbers closely. Um, you see basically the influence of the right-wing media structure um, basically impacting things. Um, let me read you kind of a, a couple other things here. Uh, let's see, where's this part I have highlighted? Majority of people say that America is going in the wrong direction, but they differ on why. Um, so among those who say that higher education is headed in the wrong direction, some of the reasons why they think this is the case differ among party lines. Majority of Republicans and Democrats say high tuition costs are a major reason why they believe colleges and universities are headed in the wrong direction. That, I think, is true across the board, right? And they're saying that. Democrats who see problems with the higher education system cite rising costs more often than other factors as a major reason for their concern. While Republicans are just as likely to point to other issues as the reason. Roughly 8 in 10 Republicans, that's 79%, say professors bringing their political and social views into the classroom is a major reason why the higher education system is headed in the wrong direction. And three quarters of Republicans right, point to too much concern about protecting students from views they might find offensive as a major reason for their views. In addition, Republicans are more likely than Democrats to say students are not getting the skills they need to succeed in the workplace is a major reason why the higher education system is headed in the wrong direction. So this is from 2019, this survey, right? My guess, if we do redo this survey now, you're going to find these numbers increasing even more. What's important to point out here is that these same concerns that we've been facing in school boards, right, this past, you know, several years around kind of CRT and kind of uh, the crackdown on LGBTQ rights um, on the uh, the crackdown on kind of uh, expression of like being able to have pride flags in the classroom and so on. Right. 
these are the same issues that have been in the right wing media circle for quite some time and starting at these at the at higher education right higher education and, and if you look at you follow some of the real right wing stuff at some points what they're saying about what happens what college what colleges do they're starting to make their way down to the high school level now now we just know that there's been um some some trolls that have been uh trolling the rainbow room once again um and uh and central bucks around like you know caring that lgbtq students deserve the same rights as everyone else for example you know but this has been kind of one of the hobby horses right i mean you know frankly this has been one of the hobby horses um uh, as long as i have been involved in college which includes getting ready for college back in you know when i was in high school through going to college and going up it was always the idea that the left right is kind of this cultural um you know cultural discussions or identity politics or whatever you want to call it at any given particular time is showing you that these liberal professors are destroying american values and, and, and using our children as lab rats in their experience all this other kind of stuff right what's ironic not ironic but yes well the important thing to know about during that same period of time is that corresponds precisely with the corporatization of higher education, right? So what does that mean? It means that you see the reduction in the, a number of humanities classes, that you see these kinds of things that were centered to a well-rounded curriculum have been reduced. The humanities as a whole has been reduced. Literature has been reduced, right? Um, things that are quote unquote considered soft right you know the same kind of stuff that corresponds to like stem right if it's not math if it's not science if it's not technology then it's considered irrelevant for the workforce and therefore irrelevant for higher education right now you know in, in my classes we always talk about this right you know there's always been a dual purpose of higher education right in this country and around the world right on the one hand there's the one that everybody is familiar with, right? About say getting a job, kind of career paths and all that other kind of thing, right? We could put, I would, I would put like about 17 asterisks next to that because a lot of the reasons why so much of this has been happening in colleges, while why college has been becoming the place for workforce training has been because corporations, right? And companies have outsourced their in-house training to colleges and universities. They basically said, we do not want to take up the responsibility anymore of training our workforce. Therefore, we think colleges should do this. And they spent decades lobbying state legislatures saying that we we don't have the workforce we need. They basically corporations wanted as a way of cutting their own costs, <clears throat> wanted workers pre prepared for themselves. So they didn't have to do the work of, quote unquote, onboarding them. Right. It's a long history of this kind of stuff. It's a really fascinating kind of transition that you see. Now, there have always been, obviously, certain degrees of kind of overlap then about you know skills that would translate into the workplace. But college, for the longest time, was it was meant to be this kind of a general education for citizenship, right? For being part of society, for giving you those kind of baseline skills and critical thinking and analysis and history and background and culture, so that when you went into the workforce, um, you could take on these new functions and things. And as the society becomes more complex and more technologized, things become more specialized, right? And so on. And so nobody doubts the fact that if you're getting into like, you know, masters and, and PhDs, right, in really specific fields of study, that there's going to be, you know, it's going to put you toward a, a particular career track, right? 
And I'm not going to be someone here that's going to say that we should get we should roll back on the sciences and math. I'm not. No, 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 no. But I'm saying that we know where the cuts have been made have been made in the kind of humanities and the arts. That's really where the cuts have gone down. And even you have you have you know, it's funny, you see people in social sciences, for example, um, who are kind of who, uh, you know, social sciences, you know, like 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 anthropology, for example, these areas that have always kind of straddled the kind of social sciences and the humanities that have been have made use of both of those have kind of the arguments they start to make are more and more allied with those of the sciences, the hard sciences, because they recognize that. Well, they don't want to be with the humanities people because the humanities people are getting cut. So we're going to call ourselves scientists over here, um, even though we're talking about human behavior and background and all this. Stuff. Anyways, so the the point being is that this has been uh, this has been, has been a long time coming, and one of the ways of ensuring that you kind of minimize the kind of say say critical thinking that you get in the humanities, right? I'm not to say there's not critical thinking elsewhere, but the kind of critical thinking you get in the humanities or the kind of more broad-based education has been under assault for, for several decades, right? Um, at least since like, you know, the 1980s, if not before that. That's the same reason why you see the kind of adjunctification of higher education, right? In other words, instead of replacing full-time tenure-track faculty members with adjuncts, which are, you know, it's like academic piecework, right? The same kind of move. If basically, you, you, you destabilize the workforce, right? You make it more contingent. Therefore, it's, it's more pliable and manipulatable. That's the same reason why state legislatures, who have been increasingly dominated by Republicans, have decided that what we should do is we should cut state funding of public higher education, right? One of the primary reasons why the cost of college has risen so much or why debt load has increased so much is because legislators, led initially by Republicans, but more so by the neoliberal Democrats and Republicans who believe that government does not have a role in kind of providing public goods, right? But we should shift it all to the private sphere, Right. We should cut taxes, cut taxes, cut taxes. In other words, we should not invest in our society as a whole, as a collective. Right. We should do it as consumers in a marketplace. Right. That's how they think about it. And so if you are not immediately relevant for a kid getting job, you know, kid getting a job. Right. If you don't see, OK, oh, you are studying. Oh, I don't know. You're studying, uh, uh, I don't know. You're studying English. I'll make it easy. This is my department, right? You're studying English. Well, what are you going to do? You're going to be a teacher? And if your answer is no, then I say, well, what are you going to do with that degree, right? It's that kind of thing. You talk to students who are in arts and crafts and things like this, they face the same thing, right? And so if the general public doesn't understand like the relationship between, say, say humanities kind of writ large and uh, a job, then they think that is irrelevant. Right. Because we've increasingly begun to think about what college is, is college is nothing more than a business transaction. Right. We've lost the other part of thing. Right. So the number one was the job stuff. The second main function of higher education has historically been to prepare for people to participate in the governance of their society, in the life of their society, in the culture of the society, <clears throat> right? Is to train citizens. And I don't mean citizens in the formal legal sense. I mean, citizens in the sense that people who are engaged in kind of like having an impact on the decisions um, that will impact them, right? Basically self-governance, right? 
what are the kind of things that are necessary for that critical thinking and everything to go in there? And that was one of the other functions, right? One of the main functions of higher education, right? If you want to have a democracy, you need an educated populace. <clears throat> well, as the Republican Party, right, has been increasingly on a trajectory that's saying that we are going to be kind of a minor minoritarian party, right? And we recognize that that critical thinking is generally has not been good for their brand, right? that it makes sense to take shots at those people that are criticizing those things you hold dear. So, for example, if you have a class that is kind of looking at, say, say religion, right? Say, let's look at Christianity. Let's pick Christianity, right? It's taking Christianity because that's usually what happens, right? They're really, usually not, they're usually not concerned with the way that, that, that Islam is taught unless it's being taught as a, any kind of potential good thing or Buddhism or all that kind of stuff. It's Christianity. So say, for example, you study Christianity, you actually are looking at, say, the Crusades and you're studying the Crusades and the kind of the, the, the mass slaughter that was done right in the name of God and all this stuff, for example, or the role of that priest kind of had in the kind of the genocide against uh, kind of, you know, Native Americans or the burning of witches, quote unquote, women, right, unruly women in Salem, Massachusetts, right, things like this. Once you start looking into those questions in a critical way, as opposed to the dogma that they get in church, right? That's what church is for. Church is for the dogma. In education, you look at it historically and critically, complexly, from all these different facets. That is what these Republicans do not want. They want what is happening in the churches, for example, to be unchallenged in the classroom. They want the conservative ideology that they're getting fed to them from Tucker Carlson and the Fox News brain to be unchallenged in the classroom. And when it is challenged, and usually by challenged, what they mean is that their kids go off to college and encounter something different for the first time in their lives. And they're shocked. And they go back and tell their parents, like, I, I, did, I just I read this thing, about, and their parents get pissed because they want to control over that, that, the way that kid is going to behave. They're trying to reproduce themselves into the future, not create critical citizens, not create critical thinking individuals. That's what they want. They want control, and they want to kind of keep within things as they are. In other words, they want to keep this country as white as possible, as Christian as possible, as capitalist as possible, right? And to the hell with the rest of us. And they do it through exactly these kind of means, right? They do it by going after, say, a class. Or my friend Colleen gets hit on this all the time, right? Teaching women and gender studies, right? If you're teaching a class that, God forbid, <coughs> brings up, say, trans rights, right, as part of a critical study, try to understand what's going on there, they will be targeted by these right-wing people and saying that they're trying to convert kind of students into kind of all, all into transgender, try to kind of propagandize in the classroom and so on. But really what's after is they want to keep any challenging education, any challenging content and material out of the classroom. And I would put forth, I would argue that that is 
the detriment of the society. I'm teaching a class like I like to talk about um, on Monday. I'm teaching a class of rhetoric democracy advocacy, which this kind of issue is right for like front and center. What is it that we're supposed to be doing? What is the role that education has in all this stuff? And why? Well, we're not talking about this explicitly in the class, but this question I have for you, right? Why is it that education is so under assault, under assault by the right wing? I mean, I, I recommend people go back and read Jenny Cohen's piece in the Bucks County Beacon where she's tracking this kind of dominionism, this far right thing where they talk about the seven the seven mountains of they say, you know, well, you got to have control. This is where they're attacking. And one of those mountains is the education, try to control education. <clears throat> They've already dominate the media sphere in this country. Fox News is the most watched cable news network in the country. Tucker Carlson is the most watched cable news show in the country. Right. And nobody needs to go to any other place other than Fox News. Right. You go into a bar. Fox News is on. You go into your shop, you know, like uh, you, you go into kind of work out of the gym. Fox News is on. <clears throat> right. They're the dominant player in that sphere. Right. And controlling values, controlling culture is another one of these areas, right? And this happens in a bunch of places. So <clears throat> when Florida goes out and starts to ban its, you know, advanced placement tests in African-American studies, it's part of the same agenda, right? It basically wants to kneecap students from the beginning. It does not want to introduce, God forbid, high school students could get AP credit for a college class in this while they're in high school. So you think about the kind of control they're trying to exercise here. You know, and one thing I've been thinking a lot about, I'm going to get, I'll, I'll try not to go too far afield here, but the one thing that I've really been thinking a lot about lately, again, I talked about this, I think, last week, is how important it is for us to begin making the argument about what our horizon is. Make it, where are we going to go and why are we going to go in that direction? What is it that we want? And this means making a certain break with what has become like Democratic Party dogma, with the idea is that <clears throat> we just trust the experts. Experts, the question is, okay, look, <clears throat> if the experts tell me, right, that this new variant of coronavirus, right, is more, um, uh, is more contagious than any other variant, right? Trusting that expert is to know that, that that is a true statement, right? And if I ask that same expert, <coughs> how do we live or, or, or what do we do? And they give us the things that we have. Well, you get the vaccine, you kind of wear a mask, you do the social distancing and all this other kind of stuff, right? <coughs> That's what the expert is going to tell us that, that we, we have to do. <coughs> we have a whole other conversation to have now about what is the world that we want to live in? And what do we do with that expert advice? Because just because an expert has says a thing doesn't automatically translate into this. It has to go into a particular worldview. Why does it matter? What are we trying to get at? What's the purpose? And if we don't make the, the, the argument as Jacinda Ardern did in New Zealand, that this is about all of us as a collective society taking care of each other, the ethic of care, 
just like we take care of our grandparents, just like we take care of our parents and our children, right? We take care of our neighbor when they need when they need their walk shoveled. We're going to take care of each other here. And it's an argument that we can make. If anybody's ever gone to church in their life, they know that that's part of the ideology of, say, Christianity, for example. Not in all churches, that's for sure. But I can just as easily say, <clears throat> give me your tired, you're sick, you're... I mean, come on, right? So as you do to the least of my brothers, so as you've done unto me. You know, that kind of thing, right? There's even basis in this kind of moral traditions that we have out there, right? And people are not just all one or the other thing. The fact is, I don't think the Democrats have done, and, and the, those of us on the progressive and the left, don't know thing, are really sketching out that vision. Critique is absolutely essential, yes, but we also have to think about what is it that we want? What kind of society do we want to, do we want to live in? What do we want our relationships with our neighbors and our communities to be? And why? And why is it that we don't want to accept Nazis in our community? Why should we exclude them? Why is it not the same thing to say, no, you're not allowed to call for the extermination of a people and at the same time say we are in free speech? Why? Because those people that are calling for the elimination of any other group have decided to play by different rules than a democratic society. They want a different kind of society. They are anti-democratic. They are anti-equality. They are the outsiders. They are the ones that are on the extremes, that have chosen to stand outside the walls of civilization, if you will. That's where we need to, we need to make that kind of argument, right? That's why it's important. And that's why the Republicans, who are increasingly a minority party in this country, the Republicans are going so hard after voting rights, after education, or over women's like <laughs> like like oh, uh, women. Period. I should just leave it at that, right? Going. I mean, seriously. Why did they try so hard for 50 years to overturn Roe v. Wade? It's so they could bring back control on women. It's to reinsert the hierarchy. Man, woman, children. All those people are white for the most part, right? Heterosexual. To reinstitute that hierarchy, which they see as essential. They do not see women as equal. They do not believe. I mean, you think about it like this. Let's just say you're anti-abortion, right? Let's say that you are 100% like disagree with abortion. Okay, that's how you come up there. But in order for me to impose my views on that abortion, right, particular abortion, like on another woman, any woman, anyone for that matter, I have to, in some way, to believe that that person, that I am better than that person, 
that my views should dominate over that person's. That that person is not capable of making the right decision, which I only believe is what I believe, right? I mean, part of what it means to be living in a democratic society is to believing that we have to enter a situation in which we believe that everybody has the capacity to make good choices on their own or the best choices they can for themselves when you have an equal playing field. Obviously, we do not have an equal playing field. Obviously, there's major inequalities and kind of kind of exploitive social structures, obviously. But to move in that direction is to move closer to having people have access to all that they would need to make the best decision possible. And we're going to know that, guess what? Not everybody's going to have our same values. To live in a democracy is to accept that. And if you believe that everybody should only have one set of values, you are not interested in democracy. You are not interested in living in a free society. You are interested in living in a society for the few that imposes its will on the rest. For example, today, <clears throat> right, it's the pro-life gathering in D.C. I believe that's today. Right. So you have all these anti-abortion activists gathering in D.C. once again. They always kind of gather there on the kind of anniversary of Roe v. Wade to like like decry how horrible it is and to kind of demand an end to abortion, <clears throat> demand the overturning of Roe v. Wade. Well, this past summer, they got their wish. Right. They got their wish. Uh, Roe v. Wade was overturned in the Dobbs case. And now. We've seen like increasing numbers of bans on abortion across the country. Where it's just illegal in their state to get an abortion. That's our world. We are in the post-Roe world, right? And, you know, there's been a lot of machinations. If you've ever listened to NPR, and again, I've said this before, but this is why one of the reasons NPR drives me nuts, right? It looks at it like, Oh, some Republicans have kind of like stated their concern that maybe they kind of overreached and what kind of electoral consequence will they have? And now they're worried about this. They take that statement by very often an unnamed person or more often than not, if it's not an unnamed person, it's someone who's not currently in office or not currently a part of the kind of the, you know, the the Trump sphere or right wing sphere or whatever you want to call it, um, of the, the Freedom Caucus, whatever you want to say. They're not those people. They're people that are outside. Maybe they've left politics and they're really concerned about what's happening, right? NPR and some, and this, I, I hate to pick on just NPR, but a lot of the kind of, especially the kind of news media will take those statements as some kind of existential thing that is kind of going on in the Republican Party. They're really worried about what's going to go on. But meanwhile, they don't do anything to change it other than tell these reporters that they're worried, well, in this article in 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 the uh, in uh, New York Times, right after Dobbs, Republicans wrestle with what it what it means to be anti-abortion, right? It says activists are pushing for tougher abortion restrictions, while politicians feeling uh, fear turning off swing voters who don't support strict limits like a national ban, right? <clears throat> so there's the setup, right? The setup is like the article is going to tell us about, oh, no, that these activists are kind of all these demanding things. But the party is like, like, oh, we really don't want to do this. Right. Really, 
because a lot of these folks, all they cared about is gaining power, right? They all they cared about gaining power. So they said, we are going to overturn Roe v. Wade. We're going to overturn Roe v. Wade. Um, and they may or may not have thought that ever was going to actually happen. But they knew it was going to get the red meat going. It was going to get the blood pumping among the activists and that they were going to come out and vote for them, right? The problem is, like everything the Republican Party does, when you start throwing just red meat after red meat after red meat to a base, to the basis of the base, right? The kind of most base emotions and kind of um, and, and, and motivating factors like fear and anger and othering, all the other kind. Once you start kind of stoking up that stuff among your base <clears throat> and then your base gets organized, right? It's going to make demands of its own, Right. So begin, what do I mean by that? Well, let's, let's take a look at this. So some Republican strategists worry that um, such a position, that be like this kind of national um, ban on abortion, <clears throat> um, such a position could repel gener uh, general election swing voters who polls show are turned off by the idea of a national ban. Other conservative activists are pushing for a new series of litmus tests that include restrictions on medication abortion, protections for so-called crisis pregnancy centers that discourage women from having abortions, and promises of fiercely anti-abortion appointees to run the Justice Department and the Food and Drug Administration. For Republican politicians, these activists are forcing the question of what exactly it means to be pro-life in a post-Roe v. Wade era. Quote, this is the important one. This is coming. The pro-life movement is not going to be happy or thanking a candidate simply for saying they are pro-life, unquote, said Kristen Hawkins, the president of Students for Life of America, an anti-abortion group. Quote, we're in a position where we're going to get down to the various candidates on how far they are going to go to protect women and children. All right. That's the dynamic that we're going to see going forward. And look, the Republicans are afraid of their base. The Democrats tend to hate their base. Republicans are afraid of their base. Right. And so what's going to happen? When you have these activists that are organized, making lots of noise, showing up and thing and demanding that you get behind a national ban, you actually you show me the Republican that's going to stand up to them and say, no, I don't think we should have a national ban on abortion. If they say that out loud, right, in public and all stuff, they will be challenged and potentially lose their seat. And they know that and they don't want to lose their jobs. So really, what I read this an article like this is what I read this as what the, what's really happening right now is those Republicans in power <coughs> who are not already behind a national ban are trying to figure out what's the language I can use to make it sound like I'm for a national ban without ever having to really vote on it. How can I guarantee that I will never have to vote on that thing? <clears throat> right. But. You spent 50 years and the far right and the kind of Christian right has spent 50 years building this movement. And if you think they're just going to go away now, now that they've been unleashed, you're crazy. And so, yes, 2024 is going to be about a national ban on abortion. Count on it. These people are telling us exactly who they are. These activists, the ones who have control of the party for the most part, who dictate the direction of Republican, you know, those folks who are willing to use violence, <coughs> threats and violence in order to get their kind of like agenda passed. Perfect example. You got that like that guy, was it in Arizona? Ran for office. 
lost the election, and they basically got other people to go and start to fire, to shoot into Democratic Party offices because he believed the election was stolen. Those are the people you're talking about. So count on it. That's where we're going, folks. That is where we are going. <clears throat> oh, yeah. And to close out the uh, our first part of the show today, we got uh, Aunt, uh, Google just announced the layoff of 12,000 workers, right? It was about 6% of its workforce, <clears throat> right? Uh, you, you should read a little bit about that. It's really interesting because it's like um, Google is making claims that the reason why it's laying off so many workers, it's the most workers it's ever laid off in its history, <clears throat> is because they overhired during COVID because that was a period of expansion. I mean, there's so many problems with that. I remember Naomi Klein wrote a great piece uh, um, in The Intercept, <clears throat> early stages of the pandemic, um, and basically warning everybody that these tech companies are looking to profit, profit over us during the pandemic and looking to kind of wrest more control over our lives. And it's exactly what they did. And what I look at, that's what Google was doing with the hiring of all those workers. And they were banking on the fact that some all of that was going to stick around. Or they maybe they didn't really care about their workers, right? They just wanted to kind of get as much in place as possible. It was fascinating. It's also happened that Google's kind of basically called back some of its um, its former leaders or whatever because of uh, the the new AI wars that are going on, right? I mean, I, I didn't put this in the in the notes today, be for <clears throat> for whatever reason. Um, the the chat uh, GPT discussion, maybe I'll I should have somebody on to talk about that. Um, the chat GPT um, thing about you know it's this uh, AI program that basically writes essays, can write essays, and it's freaking out. There's all these articles, big freak out everywhere about. Um, you know, from educators and from administrators and from, uh, you know, all people saying, oh, my God, our society's going to crash. And <coughs> and how are we going to how are we going to stop these kids from using the chat GPT and <coughs> how we know the difference? Oh, my God, AI is going to take it over. It's going to destroy education, all that kind of stuff. We've been around long enough, been around as long as I have been in education as long as I know, you know that these literacy crises happen every time there's a new technological development. And I'm having, I'll admit it, I'm having a hard time getting myself all worked up about this, <clears throat> right? Um, is it a concern? Yes, it is a concern. Is it going to bring about the downfall of Western civilization or the society as a whole? No. Is education never going to be the same again? No. <clears throat> it is interesting. It is fascinating. It is a certain kind of problem. But it's a kind of problem that also brings up a whole bunch of other problems, right? About what what is it that we think we're doing in higher education? And why is they say gatekeeping function to seem to be the one that seems most important? And I keep on find myself mentally rereading Antonio Gramsci when I'm thinking about this, just for those of you who know what that is. <laughs> Anyways, so we got lots of stuff. All right, I'm gonna take a quick break. We're gonna come back, got a couple quick things. <coughs> um um, Pennsylvania, want to hear, hey, anybody has got, while we're on a, on break, oh, it was New Mexico. Thank you, Emily. It wasn't Arizona. It was in New Mexico where that um, that right-wing uh, Republican dude uh, shot into um, the offices of Democrats. Uh, if you got any questions, you got some things on your mind, you want to throw it in chat while we take a quick break, that'd be awesome. We come back and talk about that. We come back, we're going to talk a little about uh, Shapiro. We're going to talk about... Uh, the uh, the OGL, the Wizards of the Coast Open Gaming License, and the big to-do that happened this week on, um, uh, in the gaming community and online. So 
We're going to be back right after this quick break. This is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. You can help support this show by going to patreon.com slash rcpress. Become a patron today for as little as five bucks a month. We'll be back right after this quick break. Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1986. That was the first time Dr. Martin Luther King Day was observed as a national holiday. A powerful voice for civil rights, Dr. King was assassinated in 1968 in Memphis, Tennessee, while standing on the second floor of the Lorraine Motel. He was in Memphis standing up for the rights of black garbage collectors. Dr. King gave his life supporting those fighting for union recognition. Throughout his work as a civil rights leader, Dr. King spoke powerfully of the importance of unions. Addressing a group of Teamsters in 1967, he said, Union recognition meant the real beginning. Union meant strength, and recognition meant the employer's acknowledgement of that strength. Perhaps his most stirring reflections on the labor movement came in a speech he delivered to the AFL-CIO in Springfield, Illinois in 1965. King said, The two most dynamic movements that reshaped the nation during the past three decades are the labor and civil rights movements. Our combined strength is potentially enormous. We have not used a fraction of it for our own good or for the need of society as a whole. If we make the war on poverty a total war, if we seek higher standards for all workers for an enriched life, we have the ability to accomplish it, and our nation has the ability to provide it. If our two movements unite their social pioneering initiative 30 years from now, people will look back on this day and honor those who had the vision to see the full possibilities of modern society and the courage to fight for their realization. On that day, the Brotherhood of Man, undergirded by economic security, will be a thrilling and creative reality. Hey, everybody, everybody, welcome back. It's Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken, here once again on this Friday, January 20th, 2023. <clears throat> yes, we're almost at the end of the month. We have one more show, one more Friday show before the end of the month. That's pretty crazy. <clears throat> Anyways, big news this week in Pennsylvania. <clears throat> of course, the uh, Josh Shapiro was... Um, <clears throat> You know, sworn in as the 48th governor of the state of Pennsylvania. <clears throat> um, so on one hand, let me say, thank God that people came out and supported Josh Shapiro and did not elect Doug Mastriano to, the, to, to become our 48th governor. Thank God for that. <clears throat> um, <clears throat> thank God that we have somebody who I believe is incredibly competent in the office. <clears throat> That's a good thing. Um, having said that, you know full well um, that I think it's going to be important for those of us um, uh, in the center to the left <clears throat> to keep a close eye on the Shapiro administration and not fall into a trap of like, you know, team sports. 
Like, in other words, that everything that Josh Shapiro does has to be good because he's a Democrat, <clears throat> right? We have to recognize that the Democratic Party has been a complicated, complex, and contradictory party, <clears throat> right? That is not true only in Pennsylvania. It's true everywhere. And we could talk about the reasons for that and all that stuff, but have it to say, <clears throat> Shapiro is, <clears throat> he's a... He's he's a complex individual like everyone else, right? He is really good on some things. He's he's pretty much made a placed a stake and like cemented it into the ground under the uh, <clears throat> um when it comes to kind of protecting abortion rights. That's freaking awesome, right? Absolutely, one hundred percent. He's got a pretty kind of consistent record on that. <coughs> Do we need to make sure that he stays there? Yes, obviously. But at this point, I feel pretty confident that anything anti-abortion measure that comes up, there's no way that Josh Shapiro is going to allow that um, to pass. Right? He will veto <clears throat> anti-abortion legislation. I'm pretty confident of that at this point. Right? So that's a that's a huge win, huge, absolutely huge. <clears throat> right? That alone, that alone could have been your reason for voting for Josh Shapiro. Right? Even if you are not a Democrat, don't pay attention to that politics. That alone is worth it, right? However, Josh Shapiro has also been someone who has advocated for charter schools, right? And doesn't seem to be all that enthusiastic about, you know, ensuring that we have uh, a kind of a public education system that is not corporatized and privatized, right? That puts teachers first, All that kind of stuff. And for whatever reason is, and we can speculate on those reasons, and I'll leave that speculation up to you at this point um, about why it is. I mean, I do think it has, I will say, I do think it has to do in part because, you know, he is from a fairly wealthy kind of area, kind of outside of Philadelphia, right? There's a lot of money floating around in the charter school kind of business, right? Um, Given the fact that, um, you know, the state legislature of Pennsylvania has succeeded um, over over decades, right, in wreaking havoc in the in the Philadelphia school system um, <clears throat> and kind of uh, embarking on one of the laboratories of charter schools in the country, right, supported by kind of massive amounts of money um, coming from these independent kind of like privatization foundations and things like this, like the Bradley Fund Foundation. <clears throat> like, there's a whole bunch of stuff. There's actually books written about what has happened in Philadelphia when it comes to public education, the charterization of that. <clears throat> but we know regardless of what charters started out to be, right, a place to experiment on different educational forms that would be shared with the rest of the school system, they quickly turned into a for-profit money-making endeavor. <clears throat> and the way that legislation has been writ- has written since then, right, is basically, so for example, in Pennsylvania, <clears throat> the money follows the kid, right? And there's all sorts of really interesting things about how the money follows the kid, <clears throat> Right. So, for example, charter schools have to get paid first, right, regardless of what the on-hand funds are within the district. So even though individual students that are in a particular public school, right, if you look at what the school was getting funded as and you broke that down and split it by the number of kids in that school, you probably find out that a lot of those schools, a lot of those kids were not getting that amount, right, dedicated to them. Not only that, they didn't have access to books. Do you have, you know, kind of falling apart infrastructure, all the the, kind of the nine yards of it. Right. But so 
for example, charters get paid first. They suck money out of the public schools. They have been shown again and again and again to be no better than traditional public schools and in many cases worse than traditional public schools. <clears throat> there have been multiple lawsuits and fraud and fraud convictions over people just looking to cash in on this. You find out that charter schools end up picking their picking their own students so that they don't have to deal with students with disabilities. They don't have to deal with um, um, kind of yeah, learning disabilities. They don't have to do a physical. I mean, a whole bunch of other kind of issues. <clears throat> they can choose to basically say, well, we don't think you're academically prepared for here and not allow you in. So they can pick cream of the crop to go to those charter schools. So then you have a concentration of students that are left in the public school, right, that are higher need, but are underfunded, <clears throat> leading to a downward spiral once again, right? I mean, that has been the history of charter schools. <clears throat> and, you know, we have this thing, uh, you know, I, I had this, I have a really, really um, bad relationship with gifted programs, for example, <clears throat> Right? And I say bad relationship with them <clears throat> because that whole idea about the gifted student has led to a, a cultural status around that gifted student, <clears throat> right? And a sense of entitlement to whatever they need at the expense of our communities, right? And so now, look, I understand. I understand that I want our public schools to be able to kind of, you know, teach students at all levels, right? And I do think that there's times where you have students that maybe they can't get their needs met there. Maybe they are just super freaking bright, right? Or maybe they have really different kinds of learning styles, right? That are just somehow you cannot possibly cover it in in a public school. Then you've got private schools out there, right? But if we want schooling to be able to address all those people at all those different levels, we need to fund our schools properly, right? We need to hire the correct amount of teachers. We need to have smaller classrooms. We need to take care of our infrastructure. Again, it's the same thing I was talking about in the first part of the show. show It's about start pull away everything from investing in society and you only got to divvy things off to particular individuals. But that whole idea about, you know, funded the gifting or my kid needs to go to a better school and, you know, I don't care if I'm leaving what behind. I'm not going to fight for the, but, you know, I want my kid. I want my kid. I want my kid. That has also been reinforced by a particular kind of segment of the Democratic Party that has, you know, been the privileged class within the Democratic Party since the Democratic Party kind of abandoned labor back in like, you know, labor and activists basically in the in the 80s. Right. The professional managerial class has become the default. Like most important segment um, of the Democratic Party, according to consultants of the Democratic Party. Right. Yeah. Right. Even though we know that segment of the population is not the one that kind of always shows up for Democrats. Nonetheless, that is the ideology, right? Which is some of the reasons why you get this kind of like, you know, this this uh, idealization of of college and university education and all this other kinds of stuff, <clears throat> right? But 
and I think Shapiro, I think it's a fair statement to make that he comes out of that kind of culture, this professional managerial class, right? Those are his people, right? So, you know, the, the Democratic consultant class, right? You know, I'm using class very loosely here, obviously. That class really, you know, it, it, it is about this constructed meritocracy, this technocracy, this kind of anti-ideological experts focused center of the Democratic Party. <clears throat> right. And again, I always have to say this because people always misunderstand me with the caveat to saying I'm not saying all those things are unimportant. I'm just saying in terms of what it is in terms of driving a party. <clears throat> so those are the kind of things we're going to have to watch on Shapiro. <clears throat> Part of what happens in that kind of that that segment of the Democratic Party, too, as well, is they have a fetish for bipartisanship for the sake of bipartisanship. Right. And they're supposedly anti or post ideological, right? They believe in technocracy and meritocracy and bipartisanship. Everybody's got to get along, right? Compromise by itself for whatever reason is a good thing, right? <clears throat> We've talked about this kind of in the past too as well. That's what makes me nervous about the voter ID stuff, <clears throat> right? So we've got to know that, look, and recognizing where the, the kind of political trajectory somebody has had Right. The kind of people they tend to surround themselves with. <clears throat> right. And, and recognizing where some other places we like to push them on is not to throw the baby out with the bathwater. It's not to say, therefore, I hate Josh Shapiro. No. <clears throat> but it is to say, you know, we can't just kick our heels up and walk away and say he's got to he's got to take it care of. <clears throat> now, having said that, <clears throat> I want to give a huge kudos to uh, Josh Shapiro for what he did this week. Now, not only did he get inaugurated, but um, Josh Shapiro basically issued an executive order that opens up about 92% of state government jobs to applicants without four-year degrees. <clears throat> All right. This is huge. Right. And I'm going to tell you why is it goes back to what we talked about in terms of like the pushing everything off on college and universities. Right. But the main thing, what this does, government jobs in Pennsylvania, just like any other place tend to be fairly stable, provide decent benefits, have a certain degree of job security and had been historically a ticket to the middle class in, especially for underrepresented groups. <clears throat> okay. When state governments <clears throat> and federal governments, for that matter, started requiring college degrees in order to get access, you basically cut off the working class. You cut off underrepresented groups from access to those jobs. <clears throat> right. So suddenly having to come into a position that what you're doing in that job is not dependent upon you having a college degree, but having to actually incur that kind of debt and time and that get that degree in order to operate in there creates a particular class of people within there. <clears throat> and the other thing that it does is it excludes a whole bunch of other people. Let me give you a perfect example. <clears throat> Some of the smartest people that I have met um, when it comes to questions of policy, 
when it comes to questions of investing in our communities and so on. Some of the smartest people have come out of the labor movement. Right. And they've and some of them are some of the most well-read people you have or they've just kind of think really critically and had to deal with contracts and all this kind of stuff their entire life or they come out of a tradition that believes that we should give a shit about each other or, you know, this goes down. But in their lifetime, they got a union job early. Or maybe they struck and maybe they kind of organized and helped to organize a union, uh, a union on their workplace. They kind of spent time in that movement. They helped organize, um, organize and kind of negotiate contracts. <clears throat> they kind of um, had to kind of, you know, <clears throat> mitigate really difficult exper- uh, experiences, had to kind of um, take on all sorts of learning that most of us don't have. If you talk to people that work really closely in, in union leadership, they know things to, regardless of where the, where they work. They know things about, say, for example, health and safety that the rest of us do not know. About which offices that you need to contact in order to get this. About what the correct levels of, say, black mold are in your building. Right? <clears throat> and have a particular ethic. But if those folks... Right, who have done all that work, have learned all that stuff as part of their job. If they don't have a college degree, they were excluded from a government position. When in something like, oh, I don't know, labor and industry, all that experience and all that knowledge would be absolutely critical and would be fantastic to have somebody in that place. Instead, you get that same office that is populated very often by maybe labor lawyers or people that went on and studied like human relations. Right? Or human capital management. <clears throat> and they get in those positions. So by default, you get managerial people put there as a po- who are representative of that class as opposed to representatives of the working class. That's just one example. <clears throat> But there's so there's so many and, and that's and that's just kind of like you're thinking about, say, Department of Labor and Industry. Right. And I'm not even talking about all of these top level positions. Right. I'm saying that what, what Shapiro just did, he opened up like so basically you're talking about 65,000 jobs. Right. Now, suddenly people who do not have high school degrees or college degrees or who maybe have a little bit of college but couldn't finish for a variety of different reasons or didn't finish for a variety of reasons now they can get one of these jobs and have access to the middle class and most importantly, bring in those experiences of their life into our government because they have been left out in the cold for way too long. And look, I'm someone who teaches at college. I obviously value college and university education, right? But I was steeped in the same stew as everyone else. And for the longest time, right, I thought it was like college or nothing. I remember the first time that I learned only a third of Americans have a four-year degree. I was shocked. <clears throat> this is a long time ago. But this is like but after I had after I graduated college, <clears throat> I was like on my way to graduate school or something like this. I think it was actually in my master's program. Maybe even later than that. When I was only a third of Americans. I remember thinking, like, I was shocked. And why was, should I have been shocked? No. 
but it's because I have been steeped in the ideology that like everybody's got to go. You have to go to college. You have to go to college. And I made the assumption that everyone else was doing exactly the same thing that I was. I was wrong. <clears throat> so many of us were wrong. And matter of fact, we've seen that ideology, that idea that this is the only one way, college or bus, college or bus, has helped fuel the debt crisis, has helped destroy apprenticeship programs in labor unions, and a whole bunch of other stuff. <clears throat> and has helped create this idea that in order to have a decent job, you have to get that first, and you have to be in debt first. It's just not true. <clears throat> I remember when I worked with the... Um, <clears throat> the Reading Area Labor Council, Berks County, <clears throat> for a while. And it was the first time that I really got to hear about what an apprenticeship program was, for example. <clears throat> I was working with this, uh, you know, helping fund this um, apprenticeship program. And it was the first time that I learned. And again, I'm embarrassed by this, right? As somebody who's worked in kind of, in kind of unions and organizing for a long time, I was embarrassed to learn in my second year of a job at higher education, I was embarrassed to learn that the union apprenticeship job, you very often come, say you're an electrician and you go through the union apprenticeship position jobs, right? Not only do you have to go through rigorous education and get tested and pass a whole series of tests, but you also get on the job training and you get paid while you're learning. So instead of going into debt by going to some sort of technical college to learn engineering, walk out of there with $30,000 in debt and go to go there and, and then to go try to find a job. <clears throat> if you go through a union apprenticeship program, you get paid from day one at union rates, not minimum wage, union rates. That's what it looks like to cultivate <clears throat> a generation of people and support education, and support a particular industry. So what, what the, the Berks area, you know, the, the, the Berks County, the Labor Council there was doing is they were basically wanting to making sure that we had scholarships, right, to help make a transition and get kind of, uh, or to reach out to um, particular um, kids that were at risk in the kind of, say, Reading area schools and things like this, right? <clears throat> and so the idea was, to get into the high schools to help talk about the union apprenticeship programs. So you have those folks who actually can make a choice. Well, say if I was somebody who was really interested in kind of wanting to become an electrician or wanting to be, you know, um, <clears throat> a plumber, for example, wanting all, by the way, very well-paying jobs. If all we care about is pay, there's, there's your jobs, right? Or if I want to kind of go into construction trade, all that kind of stuff. And I've been fed, you have to have higher education, you have to have higher education. And yet I someone over here is saying, you're going to get the same education, probably better education, right? Because you're going to be doing on-the-job training and you're going to get paid, you're going to have no debt. <clears throat> that's a, like, that's a that's a important conversation and option to have. In my brain, because I grew up the way I did, right? In the ideology of the culture of the 90s, 80s and 90s and so on. I thought, I thought, that before you could even get into an apprenticeship program, that you actually had to already have that other degree. That's how warped my own mentality was, <clears throat> right? So that's the idea, right? So 
by Shapiro going ahead and doing this, by opening up these jobs to folks that don't need a college education, that is huge. <clears throat> that is absolutely huge. And I <clears throat> applaud him for that. <clears throat> All right. Okay, got one more thing to talk about before we go. I know there's like a ton of things going on here, but like uh, like I said, this is uh, next week I go back to campus, right? I'm uh, back teaching again. So the last couple of weeks, uh, especially since I got I got sick, you know, like uh, like what right after the new year, it took like a week out of my my course preparation. So I've been kind of the last past two weeks, I've been seriously just like focused in on uh, on my course every day. So I've been kind of you know a little behind in. <clears throat> prepping everything for the show and everything like this. So I have it. <clears throat> but anyways, um, <clears throat> this I just thought was cool. Um, as you know, I've been, uh, I've been, you know, playing D&D for a little bit with my kids, been designing these worlds and things like this. We got a new things that's starting up on uh, in our, our Patreon site um, on called D, uh, Dungeons and Dragons and Dad. <clears throat> um, just talking through experience, it'll be a kind of a, a Patreon only place. And but Patreon only, I don't mean it's going to be exclusively only to patrons. Um, patrons will usually get cut, like you know, it'll come out early for them. Then a couple days later, it'll come out for everybody. So you're still able to go like check out that content, um, <clears throat> but keeping it in a little bit of a different space. So, anyways, <clears throat> been doing all this. I've been absolutely loving getting back into it and so on. And then, like last week, it was. Uh, I just want to make sure I got the date right. Uh, was it last week? It was the 5th. Okay. The 5th of January is when the story broke. <clears throat> All right. So a little bit, a little bit earlier than I thought. So Linda, Linda Codega of um, uh, Gizmodo <clears throat> broke the story and it had to do with something called the open gaming license of um, for Dungeons and Dragons. <clears throat> okay. And the open gaming license basically meant, <clears throat> I think it came out in, I want to say it was the, with the third edition and it came out in 2000. Yeah, 2000, right? <clears throat> so since 2000, they had this thing called an open gaming license. Okay. And basically what that meant <clears throat> is that third party creators <clears throat> could build off of the core rule set of Dungeons and Dragons and create independent content. They could create PDFs and adventures and they could sell them, <clears throat> right? And they could build that all off of this. And the ODL said, uh, OGL, you know, said that this is an open gaming license. It means we want to allow you to do this, right? And pretty much everyone pretty much agreed for a while that like it was, <clears throat> it was a win, right? Because why? Well, if I'm building an adventure, I'm writing an adventure, <clears throat> right? As a third party person, I'm not employed by Wizards of the Coast who owns Dungeons and Dragons and Wizards of the Coast is owned by Hasbro, right? If I'm not employed by them, I can write this thing and I could sell it. I could go to um, kind of several places online. I could actually just put my, my individual thing up to sell it, <clears throat> right? Or if I have a small company, small game that's interested in role-playing stuff, we can write kind of like modules and we could write different adventures, right? That people who play Dungeons and Dragons could buy those things and run that other kind of adventure. Right. <clears throat> and so you have these independent publishers, you know, independent kind of creatives and things like this, being able to kind of create all sorts of really cool content. And people want to play with those other things. They still need the core rule books for Wizards of the Coast, right? The player's handbook, monster manual, and the uh, dungeon master's guide. Right. Arguably, if you even need the monster manual, but at least the dungeon master's guide and the uh, player's manual, you'd still need those things. So it drove sales for that, too, as well. Right. And it built out the community. Right? It's also the kind of thing that has read most uh, led most recently to the explosion, for example, of kind of um, 
real-time kind of um, RPG stuff on, say, YouTube, like Critical Role, like the Dungeon Run, which you all know, kind of, I love this, where kind of, you know, kind of real play, tabletop role-playing games, um, and those creators being able to utilize those core rule books and Dungeon Dragons and run those games and kind of make revenue for themselves over it, right? <clears throat> and all that kind of stuff. So that was the open gaming license. And that is one of the things that that really has, the, the community has loved. Now, the last time that, um, so that that started in, in 2000, and then like 2003, I guess, is when they came out, or no, a little bit later than that, came out um, the, uh, uh, what was it called? The, um, the, the fourth edition, right? Fourth edition D&D, &D, in addition to doing a whole bunch of stuff that I think a lot of people, and I was nowhere near the game at this point, um, but what a lot of people really did, did not like. They didn't like what it did to the rules. It was really kind of messy. It was upsetting. But they also attempted to lock down on the ability to create independent content to try to control it all for themselves, right? That led to a huge uproar at that time, <clears throat> right? And a new company called Paizo emerged out of that, um, and they started a new gaming system called Pathfinder, right? Pathfinder, right, um, started as a direct result of uh, the last time that the Wizards of the Coast tried to crack down on um, um, on this open this open source stuff, right? <clears throat> um, which is really interesting. Um, and Paizo, which I just learned, I didn't realize this, but their stuff is at least it's advertised as um, uh, uh, as a unionized workforce, which I was thrilled about so now it's got to be thinking oh, maybe i didn't uh, maybe i should start playing pathfinder um <clears throat> but that happened right so that happened back then but anyways after all that pressure came from that first time around with the fourth edition one they basically re-released the uh, the uh the the ogl the open gaming license right so oh, oh, we, we screwed up we screwed up and then came out fifth edition um D &D, which is basically streamlined some of the rules, made it much more accessible for a lot more people, and has led to this most recent explosion. It happened to correspond, come out, it came out like a few years before the pandemic hit. So it was like at this, you know, time when there was an explosion of stuff. Critical Role had had huge success that, you know, uh, in kind of like their uh, um, their YouTube stream about streaming D&D uh, &D real time, uh, real play games. And so it was this kind of like this really rich space that so much stuff was going on. People would do reviews about it. They'd come up with new things. And you had all these different companies producing more content to meet the demand, right? Because like Wizards of the Coast only comes out with maybe two to three books a year, right? Two new kind of adventures kind of per year. Because, you know, they take a lot to produce and they do a great job with it. Um, but so you have all this other content to fill that point. It was great. So what happened at, at the beginning of the uh, beginning of the year, January 5th, um, someone leaked. There were these behind the scenes uh, um, discussions with some uh, content creators. Uh, and apparently they weren't really discussions. They were more like showing them things and getting reactions. But they had a new license that basically was going to clamp down on these independent creators. And Wizards of the Coast first, he said, no, no, really, that's not what we're doing. But then the actual draft of this new this new open gaming license, quote unquote, um, the new one was released, and then people said, "Okay, you're claiming one thing, but what you clearly have defined in this, you took like whatever, like a like a 900 page document, what was it, or it was a, uh, I wish I think I thought I had it listed right here. Let me see, where is it? Yeah, so you took a document that was about. Um, 
uh, yeah, about 900 words long. Right, basically saying, hey, this stuff is to share, and and made a draft getting ready that was 9,000 words long, significantly more. And it addressed like new technology, like blockchain, NFTs. Took a, it did. This was a good thing. Took a strong stance against bigoted content, explicitly stating the company may terminate the agreement of third-party creators published material that is blatantly racist, sexist, homophobic, transphobic, big, bigoted, or otherwise discriminatory. That is all good stuff, <clears throat> right? But the big thing is that there was part of it that said it will no longer um, that uh, the OGL uh, 1.0 state that it's no longer an authorized licensing agreement, which means it could potentially all those other um, those companies and individuals and content creators in kind of jeopardy, right? Or they would have to suddenly have to kind of share all their profits with, with Wizards of the Coast, right? Um, and there was all sorts of claims like not only not only would Wizards of the Coast be able to um, shut down other content, but if you created content that basically utilized uh, um, D and D. Um, then D&D would basically own that. They could do whatever they want with it. So essentially they could steal your content, publish it under their own name, um, not even have to credit you, and then they, they would pull in all the profits for it, right? So obviously the community went up and kind of blew up about this. They pushed back hard on it. It was like, um, there's this one company called uh, Cobalt Press. They produce these independent contents. They're one of the largest ones. They just announced, that, okay, in response to this, they've been working on something like this. They they start, okay, we're going to start our own game system. It's going to be called, it's called the Black Flag Project. And they're going to be kind of announcing stuff on here. So just like what happened before, when you attempt to kind of crush a community, now this is happening again. You're going to have, you know, now more options that are out there in part. Um, and Cobalt Press has basically said, look, our agreement is going to is going to guarantee forever, <laughs> right? That um, that um, you will be able to create independent content um, based upon our rule sets. So, anyways, after all this pushback, right? After all this kind of stuff, after attempts to negate or to deny that they actually released this stuff to um, to um, to pretend that it was something other than it was not, they finally apologized. Right? A Wizard of the Coast came out and apologized. And they said, okay, we're getting rid of that draft. We're getting rid of it. And now they've come out with this kind of like 2.0 draft, um, which is basically trying to go back to the other one with some other, but instead of basically trying to do it under the cover of night, they've released it to the public so people can actually um, read it, comment on it and push back against it. So we're gonna see what happens. So the moral of the story and why I decided to spend any time with it is because, right? This is essentially in a nutshell, right? What we all face. Right. You have like, you know, something that was like like Wizards of the Coast was making good money. Right. And they're owned by Hasbro, one of the world's largest toy creators. Right. Not in the poorhouse, not in the poorhouse. Right. And because of what they did, because of the product they had and this gaming stuff they had, it created all sorts of points of connection and creativity and community that was out there. Right. Conventions built around this stuff, independent kind of creators like shops kind of like, coming, you know, all sorts of things that are going on. Right. That I would argue, right, that kind of dynamic is a good thing. And they said, look, we don't care if you go out and do your own thing, you make some money off it. Right. You know, here's our book. These are our tools that let's share. Let's kind of work together. Awesome. Instead, you get the corporate mentality that saw that during and I'll tell you, this is what my theory is. During COVID, so many more people started coming and started reading and getting involved with D&D for the first time. They started playing online, 
right? And so things like there's other place called Roll20, for example, that place where people will play online. Other people use different kinds of tools. But regardless, um, Wizards of the Coast announced that they have this site called uh, D&D Beyond, which is kind of their online tool set. Um, that they, they were going to launch their own kind of like, you know, um, kind of online gaming kind of platform so that you could kind of play with people out in the same place. Uh, it was called One D&D, and there's all this other stuff that was coming up with it. So my guess is this was an attempt for them to try to restrict the community, right, restrict access to things and force people into use their tools. It never works well with an organized community, and that's the point. The community has got to be organized, has got to be prepared to fight back in order to push for things. And this, in this case, they did just that. But those people who own the owner class, right, whether we're talking about the original capitalist or whether we're talking about the, you know, Hasbro right now, it's always the enclosure in capitalism, right? I mean, that's it. It's always the attempt to basically take those things that are public and creative and things like this and close it and control it, kick you out and require admission in order to get back in. Right. And that is the story of that in a nutshell is neoliberalism too, as well. Take those things that are public and close it, AKA privatize it, require admission to get back in. Right. Which obviously creates all sorts of barriers and all that kind of stuff. It reinforces inequality, right? All that other kind of, kind of good stuff and impoverishes the public. So, um, it's just been a really fascinating example um, to see this going on. It's, uh, it was amazing to see this community push back. Um, and, you know, look, I, like I said, I've been loving playing this stuff, but I'm nowhere near kind of like as involved with all these other creators that are out there or anything like this. I mean, I want to be like 100 percent clear. I'm someone who's like uh, a kind of a new return to uh, to D&D &D and just absolutely thoroughly enjoying it. Uh, when this stuff first came out, like my my biggest concern was like I, I just felt this like drop in my stomach. Right. Um, I was like, are they going to make it increasingly more difficult for me to like this thing? And that would be uh, really sad. But um, community to the rescue. Anyways, uh, that's what I thought I would share about the uh, uh, Wizards of the Coast open gaming license and all the big to do. Um, if you have I mean, if you're interested in this stuff at all, go check out anything. You probably have seen some of it on Twitter. On, on all the YouTube creators are putting out statements and kind of doing special shows on it. Um, great reporting. It's made into the New York Times and all this other stuff. And it just, you know, it's been really a case study in, say, um, say uh, collaborative and collective pushback in my mind. So there you have it. Anyways, that's all I got for today. Uh, thank you all for kind of uh, tuning in live today. Uh, thank you, Emily. Thank you, Nick, uh, for your comments. Um, I look forward to uh, lots of good stuff kind of coming up um, in the weeks ahead. I've got a good feeling now. Last last time I was on, I was not feeling so great. I was not feeling as uh, um, upbeat as I am today. But today I'm in a pretty good pretty good space. Maybe it's just because the sun's shining out. Maybe it's because I'm a little lightheaded from getting all my blood work this morning. Who knows? <laughs> we'll just see. But anyways, thank you all for tuning in. Thank you all for your support. And I want to remind you, uh, if you like the show, share it with your friends. Get the word out. Um, and look, if you like this and you're not already a patron of the show, you can head on over to patreon.com slash RC press and become a patron today. If you are a podcast listener, make sure that you leave us a five-star review, leave a review, telling people why you like the show. The more that you do that, the more it helps other people find the show. If you're watching YouTube, you're watching this on YouTube, 
hit that like button, subscribe to our channel to make sure that other people get to find the show. We've been on this steady increase that we've been growing. It's been great to see. Um, it's been amazing that uh, we've had this community that has uh, been so invested in you know creating these independent public media spaces or independent community-based spaces, however you're going to say that. Oh, it was pretty amazing. Anyways, this is Kevin Mahoney, creator and founder of Raging Chicken. Uh, we will be back on Monday. Um, hopefully, I got a guest coming on Monday. Uh, I'm looking for maybe some confirmations ahead of me. Um, we shall see. If not, it's just going to be my lowly self again. But I'm going to do my best to have a guest back on, on Monday. Um, I'll let you know what's happening. Um, but for now, you know, I wanted to sound like Casey Casey for a second, but I'm not going to. But anyways, have a great weekend, everybody. A weekend, everybody. And uh, here we go into the end of January. Let's do it. See ya.